The reading this morning is from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 36, and can be found in your Bibles on page 1061. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor in Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since this all took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things, and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, There they found the eleven and those with them 
assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. We are still on Route 66 and we're coming to the Gospels. And the theme is Jesus, the good news. That was the one supreme thing that the writers, the Gospel writers, wanted to communicate to the people, Jesus, the good news. I hope that in your mind's eye, and with some degree not too much, but enough imagination to come with me on this uh, journey, a journey that focuses, for the sake of time, on one part the concluding part of Luke's Gospel. And as part of our focus, we're thinking about these disciples who become thoroughly disillusioned, and there's perhaps a sense that they have been misled, and now they want to go back home, save up for a pension, and take early retirement. They have been misled and they are disillusioned. Well, that's how uh, the, the, the part of the reading that we had today uh, gives us uh, that scene. However, I think it's true, and uh, think about it as I say this, nothing has fascinated people more down through the corridors of time, and right up today, Nothing has fascinated people more deeply than the question of whether there is life after death. It's a question that occupies cultures of every kind. And what you have in the New Testament is not so much an answer, but a demonstration of life. In Jesus Christ. And he had said, of course, as you know, before his crucifixion, I am the resurrection and I am the life. John Stott, who is still alive but very frail in a a nursing home, uh, said this, that uh, Christianity is in its very essence a resurrection religion. It is a religion supremely of the resurrection. And he goes on to say, as only he could, remove it, and Christianity is dead. Not even a par with other religions. It is that important. So this morning, with that sort of comment, let's walk together. Come with me. Come alongside these folk and eardrop on this conversation. Here are these 
disillusioned disciples. Here is the living Lord. Credible contrast. And you will see the process of wonderful transformation. So what we have in Luke 24, it's, it's this. Real people asking real questions and having a real conversation. It would be interesting to ask ourselves, when did we last have that without giving our customary uh, polite replies? I had my hair cut last week and asked the hairdresser, how are you? She said, how much time have you got? I said, that's a better answer than people give me at church. I told her that. Uh, I was reading this book, and by way of comment on this, um, it's called The Provocative Church. It's written by um, Graham Tomlin, Vice Principal of uh, Historic Theology uh, of Evangelism in Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, training of Anglican uh, pastors. And he relates, I'm going to read this to you, just think about this for a moment. And what we are talking about now is real questions, real concerns, real issues. A few years ago, a friend of mine walked into his local church expecting the normal midweek prayer meeting and Bible study. As he entered, he saw a group of people sitting around in a circle as usual. So he took a seat, noticing rather absentmindedly that quite a few of the people he didn't know. As he looked a bit closer, he realized that he didn't recognize anybody in the group at all. Looking at his watch, it dawned on him that it was the wrong day and that he'd stumbled into the wrong meeting. By this stage, however, it had started. The meeting had begun. So he could hardly leave. A middle-aged woman was speaking about the kind of week she'd had and how she'd managed to avoid, quote-unquote, it, whatever it was. For most of the week, apart from a few minor slips, as each person took their turn speaking, my friend realized that he had stumbled into a meeting of the local branch of the Alcoholics Anonymous. Before long, he mumbled some embarrassed apologies and left. However, it made an impression upon him in contrast to the meetings that he had led and been to. There seemed to be a measure of honesty an admission of failure, a celebration of success, a mutual encouragement in the common struggle that he'd rarely found in his Bible study, which seemed rather academic and less important. The people who had gathered for the alcoholics meeting came because they knew they needed help. And the kind of transformation offered by Alcoholics Anonymous is freedom from addiction to alcohol. It's the great leveler. And for Christian people, it is our mutual freedom from sin in Jesus Christ to whom we pray and ask for grace to help. There it is. And what you have here in this interesting dialogue is wonderful absence of pretense and politeness. Real people talking about real issues, 
Not sending out emails, talking, relating, being honest with each other. Perhaps that may well be an issue that all of us in our work, with our families, in church, need to take note to. So here we have it. And what I'd like us to do then is to come with them. First of all, we have, they are walking and they are relating. And then secondly, you will see that they are listening. And interestingly, they are doing most of the talking, not Jesus. And then finally, they are reflecting and they're rejoicing. I hope that we can make that pilgrimage in our hearts as well. Okay, walking and relating. Verses 13 to 18. And each of these headings have a subheading. Okay? Which all I want to do is to borrow from the passage itself as you, as you will follow the references. So walking and relating. There's a big growth industry with relate counselling. People are living under the same roof with their own children, but growing apart, and nobody seems to be able to do much about it. But often the turning point comes when people, particularly husbands, are willing to talk. We don't talk anymore, they say. Walking and relating. Jesus, you see verses 13 to 18, he opened their minds. How easy it is to come to church with our prejudices and our closed minds and be so unlike the Alcoholics Anonymous who know one thing. If they go back to the drink, their lives are ruined and they've lived just one more week without it. And we, coming together in prayer, have lived one more week with him and pour out our hearts to him. Jesus opened their minds They're not happy walkers. They're not happy ramblers. You see there in verse uh, 17. As they were kept from recognizing him. A lot of discussion in verse 16 what that really means. Um, But verse 17, he asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. There it is. Hopes shattered. Their desires unfulfilled, their dreams had dissipated. Now, for sure, these two uh, disciples, they knew a great deal about the Bible. You can see that in, in the context of how Jesus spoke to them. So they knew about the prophets. They knew that Jesus was coming to be the great Messiah. And here he is, like one who was born timely to bring redemption to people, led like a lamb to the slaughter. They knew that. They didn't make the connection that it was Jesus. They'd heard, they'd seen that Christ had died a painful death. They'd heard the rumor about the resurrection, but it didn't connect. Didn't connect. Jesus is the Passover. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It didn't engage. And sometimes, you know, some people can go through periods. I know this. There's a time in their lives where God's Word comes to them faithfully, prayerfully, in the power of the Spirit, and it just ricochets off their hearts. But it's not happening here because Jesus is beginning to engage 
and challenge. And Jesus comes alongside in this lovely characteristic way in verse 16. You see that. He comes alongside. And there's a but, isn't there? Uh, I suggest to you that they're so preoccupied with themselves, feeling sorry for themselves, nobody understands them. What's all this about? Downcast, discouraged, feelings, hurts, anger, frustration. And Jesus comes alongside. They didn't see him. And Jesus speaking and they didn't know. It's almost a caricature, isn't it? It's almost unbelievable. But wait, you know from your experience it isn't unbelievable. It's terribly credible. He's there. But they're too preoccupied with themselves. You see, such emotions, let me put this to you. And if you are willing, you should stop pretending. Because such emotions like this are never buried dead. In your heart and in your mind and in the seat of your emotions, they are buried alive. And when the pressure comes, they surface. Now, Jesus knew that. He's a wonderful counsellor. He knew that. Such emotions are never buried dead, buried alive, hidden from the surface, of course, out of sight. But the danger, what's the danger? Well, you, you don't feel love. And the cumulative danger, you don't feel hate. You just don't feel anything. Nothing. Now, that's a terrible state to be in, just Nothing. Not doing anything wrong. Not doing anything right. Just. Just. Month after month. Year after year. A sort of permanent numbness. Anaesthetized to other people's emotions and your own. You see the danger. Jesus comes alongside. They didn't see him. Didn't recognize him. Didn't know him. You don't feel love. You don't hate. Just nothing. I am sorry to say I meet too many people like that. It's not good. It's a bad place to be. And if this is you today, then surely you must stop doing that. Maybe it's become a bad habit. Maybe it's the only way you say, I can survive then you should stop doing that. You should genuinely to take stock and do this. Start relating again. Be willing to be hurt again. Be willing to love again. Be willing to feel again. Jesus didn't send them an email, did he? The little boy was praying, wasn't he, in his prayers at night. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from emails, he prayed, the little boy. He must have heard some discussion with his parents, I'm sure. Walking and relating, Jesus opened their minds. We're not mindless people. We have minds. And we shouldn't close them. Closed off. Open your minds. He opened their minds. Secondly, walking and relating, he opens their minds. Listening and talking, Jesus opened their eyes. 
He's doing things that they can't see. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. That's why we chose, I chose that song. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to relate to you. This pretending is pretty poor, really. Jesus opened their eyes. Now, just imagine. Here is the greatest teacher that ever lived, bringing the greatest good news that people have ever heard, explaining the greatest message of all time, and bringing the greatest message of salvation. He so loved the world, he gave his Son, that whoever believes shall not perish. And Jesus does something. He opens them their eyes as well as opening their minds. You see, it, it, it's not only the word, is it, people say. You know, we love the word, of course. It, there is a danger, isn't there? Even from the, the most sincere of us here, we say, we, we love this book, yes, but how much do you love the one in whom it presents that beyond this sacred page, I love Jesus. Jesus didn't just give them the word. He did that, for sure. He could read his, his sermon, if you like. But he's the living word. And you see in verse 27, it's quite salutary, isn't it? This is what it says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He is the living word. And it, when you come to church and worship, you haven't truly worshipped unless you have engaged with the living Lord. Not simply to go out to learn certain facts. We need that. But we need our eyes open. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. We have the word, the living word, Jesus. So how much are we listening? How much are we seeing beyond thus far our experience? Open eyes. Open their understanding. Opening their hearts. How willing are we? I'm talking. Uh, I have to confess that I do get Rupert Murdoch's newspaper, The Times. And uh, I want to quote from it two weeks ago, a credo on la two Saturdays ago. And Jonathan Sachs is giving uh, the comment that you have in the paper. Some of you may remember this. And uh, under the heading, it's good to talk to those we disagree with. It's even holy. This is how he begins. It's good, they used to say with the adverts, to talk. According to Judaism, more than good, it's essential. Without speech, there is no relationship. And without relationship, there is no peace. He relates that in three biblical accounts. And then he says this. In the Old Testament, it is a religion of language. A sustained meditation on the power of words to build or destroy, heal or harm. In words, God created the universe. 
In words, he reveals himself to us. The first thing he gave the first man, Adam, was the gift of naming animals using words. In Jewish tradition, Homo sapiens is described as the speaking being. The speaking being. Jewish law sees, quote, unquote, evil speech as akin to murder. Jesus took that up in the Sermon on the Mount. There is a trace of this in the English phrase, character assassination. And think of the frenzied activity today now with the press. Words can wound, injure, inflict, of course. They can also lead to understanding and reconciliation. Honest, open conversation is the best way, sometimes the only way, to resolve conflict. And the great irony of the 21st century is that having created technology of instant global communication, we find ourselves talking less and less with those whom we disagree, even in church. And he says this, there is a danger that a generation is emerging unable to give a respectful hearing to the other side. When that happens, the Bible warns, Violus is waiting in the wings. There is a lovely rabbinic phrase, conversation is a form of prayer, openness to the divine other, God, and helps us to open to the human other, ourselves. Talking, listening. We've got a lot of work to do, haven't we? And relationships in marriage and in church and with our children can so easily erode into camps of slogans rather than engaging. I guess we don't talk enough or listen enough. And Jesus re-established the lines of communication. And look at verse 28. As they approached the village, it's a, very, it's a fascinating thing here. You see, Jesus is teasing them a little to say, do they really want him? Do they? And if not, well, he just keep going. I mean, how much do you really want him? Look at this. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. They weren't having any of that, were they? Look, in verse 29, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, it's nearly evening, the day is almost spent. So he went in to stay with them. Would he have stayed if they hadn't asked him? Will he come into your life if you don't ask him? Really? I don't think so. Is he a stranger to you? Because this is a day of good news. Jesus re-established the lines of communication. And can you see, Jesus, in your circumstances today, this morning, in your what? Well, where are you at? Pressures of work, difficulties at home with the growing children, financial constraints, strained relationships, bereavement. And that's just a few, isn't it? Can we see Jesus in our circumstances? Or is he a stranger to you? 
Has he passed by and, and left you? Because you didn't know. Uh, of course, it's easy to blame the church. Yeah, it's a bit boring and, you know, and, you know, that really isn't good enough, is it? You might be surprised. Jesus is not only alive, but he's beside you. And he's with you. And you see in verse 25, he said to them, I suppose some of us might be in the half if somebody said this to you. How foolish you are and slow of heart not to believe all that the prophet has spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? What a transformation. And look at verse 30 and 35 just before we go on to our final point very quickly. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. I'm sure that was a traditional Hebrew prayer. A bit more than for what we're about to receive, may the Lord make us thankful. It would have been a prayer, giving thanks to God for his goodness and his faithfulness in the, in, in the Jewish tradition. Then, yes, tradition... Some of us think that's a bad thing, but no. A traditional prayer, penetrating the heart. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him. It took a while, didn't it? It's a long journey. Now, the breaking of bread isn't, uh, isn't here a communion service. For sure it can be, and often it is. But here is the most simple the most simple, the most absolute basic, bread. Well, he said that, didn't he? I am bread to you, the bread of life. But that which is most basic and most simple becomes special and spiritual, an encounter with the living Christ. And you have it again in verse 35. Look at that. Then the two told what had happened on the way, how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. It could be a communion service, but it wasn't. Listening and talking, Jesus opened their minds. And finally, reflecting and rejoicing. Now, this is a fascinating part, and uh, stay with me on this. And, and the subheading is, Jesus opened their mouths. Opened their mouths. Verses 32 to 36. Verse 32 is especially poignant. Look at it yourself. What do we have here? Verse 32. So, they've broken bread. Their eyes have been opened. They see Jesus. What do they do? They spoke to each other. Chances are perhaps they hadn't really had a serious conversation for a long time. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning with each other while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They talked to each other. Uh, C.S. Lewis always got something good to say about this and uh, on his reflection on the Psalms, this is a very old tarty book that I have, I picked this up and just follow this with me in this immediate context, Okay of verse 32. 
C.S. Lewis says this, I did not see that it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to us. It's not the only way. But for many people at many times, the fair beauty of the Lord is revealed chiefly or only as they worship him together. And then he goes on to say this. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, strangely escaped me. Maybe it escaped you. Listen to this. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or giving of honour. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless sometimes, even if shyness or fear of boring others deliberately brings it into check. The world rings with praise. Lovers praise their mistresses, readers their favourite poet, walkers praise the countryside, players praising their favourite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, mortals, horses, colleges, so on and so on and so on, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even at times politicians, he says, even then. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise most, while cranks, misfits and malcontents praise least. And then he says this, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so, right, they spontaneously urge us to join in with them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't that good? Didn't you like that? Or, verse 32, didn't our hearts burn within us? You see the point? Yes, they've had an encounter. And now they want to share that with each other. And it is the sharing of it is actually the consummation of true joy. Keep it to ourselves and actually we can destroy it. That's how we made. And you see what they do? They said to each other, how did you feel like that? What was it for you? Did your heart burn within you while he talked to us? And, and the point of the heading is this. It's reflective, isn't it? Perhaps some of our best moments is we look back and see how God has blessed us. And we start to rejoice. Jesus opened their mouths. I think the order actually is important, isn't it? We're told at school, engage mind before opening mouth. I'm afraid I was not very good at that, getting... But you know what I mean. So, you see the order. You can, opening your minds, opening your eyes, opening our mouths. I've got something authentic to say now. We become, instead of the community of burdened hearts, the community of the burning heart, the burning heart, the burning heart. Reflected praise, spirit-filled, Jesus-centered. And in conclusion, you see the sequence, verse 45, he opened their minds, he opened their eyes, opened their mouths. 
Charles Wallace and I when we went to hear Lord Coggan, perhaps just about 18 months before he died, as he spoke in University College uh, Church in Oxford, speaking about the Anglican Church. You know, I've given this quote before, I always rem- remember, where he gave off about um, curates and vicars and church leaders and bishops and so on, and said that as a result of their impoverished preaching and lack of reading, that most Anglicans are like Arctic rivers frozen at the mouth. Now, I felt like saying, and Baptists too, trust me. They weren't frozen at the mouth anymore, were they? There wasn't the same old stuff coming out. And all of this is not what we do. If you think, oh yeah, that's a challenging sermon, let's do better. It isn't. We need to do things. But first and foremost, it, it, is, it is what Jesus does through us in the power of the Spirit. That's the point. And if we don't get that, we've missed it altogether. Jesus is good news of great joy to all people. 